0: Welcome to the Sunshine Gardening Podcast. This gardening show will equip and inspire avid gardeners with weekly tips and tricks to help them navigate the gardening world. The show will also highlight specific growing requirements for several plants, so the sun will shine brighter over their Kentucky garden. And now, here is that ray of sunshine, garden enthusiast and horticulture extension agent, Kristen Hildebrand, with the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service summer vegetable crops are definitely coming in full
1: force right now. Home gardeners are busy harvesting those crops, that is, until the summer garden pests move in. So to talk to an expert, I called up UK Extension Entomologist, Dr. Jonathan Larson, to see what specific information he could tell us about that relate to these summer garden pests and ways and strategies to help keep those summer pests under control. So if you would like to hear more about tips related to summer garden pests, stay here on episode nine, right here on the Sunshine Gardening Podcast. Okay, we are so excited to have with us today is Dr. Jonathan Larson, and he is our University of Kentucky Extension Entomologist. So glad to have you joining us today.
2: Thank you. I'm honored to be here. It's a lot of fun.
1: Now, you did say that you've officially been here with the university now a year. Is that right?
2: That is correct. Over the weekend, I celebrated my year anniversary.
1: We're so glad to have you with us. (laughs) And I've noticed from you, Dr. Larson, that you seem to have a good personality about stuff.
2: (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) I mean, I talk about bugs all the time. So how much more fun can I have in life?
1: Well, and I feel like everybody has their own niche. You know, like with us as horticulture agents across the state, you know, we always have our certain niche that we get excited about. But what made you want to become an entomologist to begin with?
2: It's kind of a story tied up in extension, actually. So when I was a kid, I was in 4-H. And when I first started 4-H, we did lambs. But my dad had a rule that for every project you had out in the barn, you also had to have a project that was inside in the 4-H pavilion in my home county, of Pipton, Indiana. And I did art usually. And then one year, I picked up, I think I had a calf that I showed. So I needed to pick up another inside project. And I thought about electricity and rockets. And I had done those once or twice before. And I saw entomology and I was like, what is that? Read through it and I thought, I can do this. I can make an insect collection. And I asked the agent that was doing 4-H for our county at the time what I needed to do. And they didn't have any of the booklets or anything <laughs> on them. And so I just kind of won it. I just made an insect collection. I didn't really know what the rules were. And so I collected anything and everything. and I put pens in it and I put little numbers underneath them, and I made a sheet that attached to the collection so that people could read what each bug was, and I had little descriptions of them. It was totally wrong. I did everything that you're not supposed to do for an insect collection, but I was the only entrant, so I won, and I got to go to the (laughs) state fair, and when you go to the state fair in Indiana, you get invited to the Purdue Entomology Department. I walked in, and I felt very at home. They were all very weird people, and they love talking about bugs, and I realized that I was going to be an entomologist. Just seemed like a lot of fun and a lot of interesting things to learn.
1: Oh wow! And and two, you know, you learn from your mistakes. I feel like you know everybody kind of has to start somewhere. That's true. But like you said, you had fun doing it, and like you got to meet these other people that you know were very encouraging, probably to you even as a youth. So that's an awesome story about why you became an entomologist. Tell us a little bit more about yourself, Jonathan. Maybe about your journey you started at a young age as a youth, but kind of take us along how you further developed your entomology.
2: Sure. So I got started with entomology probably when I was 13 or 14. I think that was the first year I did it. And then when I made some friends of the faculty at Purdue University, I started volunteering there a lot. So they have an event every year called Bug Bowl. And I was a high school volunteer for Bug Bowl. I was a roach wrangler. I would handle the cockroaches that were going to go racing or the cockroaches that were doing the tractor pull. They have a Madagascar hissing cockroach tractor pull at this event every year. (laughs) I was helping with those. And then I became a tomato hornworm wrangler. I was the person that showed those off at the petting zoo. Oh
1: my gosh, Jonathan. Oh my
2: goodness.
1: (laughs) I told our listeners that you were funny and comical, but this really is true. Yeah.
2: I think these are the things that brought me into entomology. It seemed to me like this big science communication party. Everybody has feelings about insects one way or the other. So it's kind of an entry point to get to talk to folks about something weird and biological in their world. And so that was what kind of convinced me to do it. I went to Purdue for my undergrad. I came down to Kentucky and actually this is where I got my PhD. I was here with Dr. Dan Potter and I was a turfgrass entomologist. And after I finished in Kentucky with my degree, I spent the last five years in the state of Nebraska. I was a county agent for the University of Nebraska out there. I was in Omaha, so it was a little different experience, very urban, a lot of different kinds of calls than I had expected as an extension person. I spent most of my time with bedbugs, which is not something that I had previously worked with, but I would get sandwich baggies full of bedbugs delivered to me and people complaining about them. I'm sure that you can sympathize.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely.
2: And it was just, A lot of fun. This is what I wanted to do, was to do extension, to talk to people about bugs, and to try and teach them a little bit about the world around them.
1: Yes. I think that's fascinating. Kind of like your journey along in entomology. Oh, goodness. You know, right now, Jonathan, the reason why we had you come on is that summer gardens are at their peak. You know, we have a ton of fruits, vegetables, a lot of things growing right now. But one of the detrimental things behind that is that also our summer garden pest pressure does go up. And there's a lot of things that we get calls in regards to that relate to that. So I was hoping that maybe you would talk to us about some summer garden pests that are becoming an issue and maybe some things that we can do to kind of keep them at bay.
2: Well, I think if anybody's going outside right now and taking a look at their garden, one of the first pests they're probably going to notice is Japanese beetle. It's a big bug every year. It attacks over 300 different species of plants, but that includes a lot of our favorite garden crops. And so if you see these orange and green iridescent beetles kind of buzzing around, that's them. They also have white dots on their side that help to separate them out from some possible lookalikes they Tend to attack the leaves. They strip out that green part in between the veins and they create that lacy, doily-like skeletonized damage. But they'll also feed on fruits and flowers. So sometimes they ruin our ability to even get to the fruiting stage. And other times they steal the food right out of our mouth almost. They're eating it off the vine or out of the tree. So I think that's a big one that people are probably noticing. After that, I get a lot of questions every year about squash vine borer. And I think that when the plants start running, that's usually when people start to notice that there's something amiss. Your plant will look like it's kind of wilting, maybe yellowing. And then if you look closer towards the base of the stem, you might notice a bunch of orange goo exuding out. Have you experienced this before? Are you a gardener? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I do have a garden, but it's more on an herb garden type scale. So I don't have a ton of edibles. Okay. But yeah, I didn't realize that.
2: Yeah. So when they're inside the plant, they're a caterpillar. The caterpillar stage is the damaging piece. And so they get inside the stem of the plant and they actually kind of bore their way up and down, just like we think of with our tree borers. As they do that, there'll be a hole that is produced every so often and they push out their frass, their poop. And it looks kind of like orange gunk. Gotcha. Yeah, it's an interesting looking moth when it becomes an adult. They're kind of a silver and gray and red color. They're a day flying moth, so they're a wasp mimic. And when they lay their eggs on the plants and those caterpillars get in there, it just can wipe out a whole stand of squash. Do you want me to give some control tips for folks as well?
1: Yeah, if you don't care, because I know a lot of people, like whenever you talk about it, they instantly want a control recommendation. So please do. And talk about both organic options for those that might not want to apply chemical. And then also, maybe if you have an infestation of it, then you can look to a chemical control too.
2: So with the squash vine borer, in terms of controlling it, you really aren't going to have too many chemical options. There are some. Okay. But since it's inside the plant, it can make it very hard to spray for it. Once it gets inside that stem, you can't really get insecticides to it. Otherwise, you'd be using a systemic on something that you want to eat. And normally, we don't end up doing that too often in a garden. But there are still some things that you can do. If you notice the hole, you notice the frass coming out, you can kind of feel along for where the caterpillar may be. Or you can just take a toothpick and start poking into the plant and stab the caterpillar with the toothpick. It's very satisfying for most <laughs> folks. And then once you've killed it, the damage will cease and you can bury the part of the stem that has been damaged. And hopefully it'll reroot, and the plant will take care of itself and get healthy again. We have some success with that. It's not 100%. There's also vine surgery where you can actually slice the vine open and pull the caterpillar out and destroy it that way. But if you wanted to protect it earlier in the season, prevent any damage, you'd be looking at some sort of shield for the base of the plant, some foil perhaps, or one of those purchasable shields that you see at the garden store or on Amazon. And then it keeps the moth from being able to lay her eggs there. They will go other places on the vine, but usually that's where they want to focus their activity is right there near the base towards the soil. You can also treat with an insecticide at that point. It would be a contact product like carbaryl, which we see most often in seven, or with a pyrethroid type insecticide. And that would mean that once the female lands on it, she's going to absorb the product and die and hopefully not get her eggs out so that there's no caterpillars.
1: Is there a prime time of doing that, Dr. Larson? Like I know that generally here we plant squash right after Derby Day, so second weekend in May. But then... Is there a timing when that's good to actually start doing that? I guess for the barrier, you could probably do that immediately.
2: You can do that immediately. And then you want to go out in early June and be monitoring for this. So you'll notice the moths flying around. You can also monitor for them with a trap. If you get a yellow plastic bowl and fill it with soapy water and set it in the garden, the adults will actually fly into the bowl. And once you start seeing two or three of them pop up into the bowl, then you know it's time to put that insecticide on your vine.
1: Oh, that's good. That's a really good tip. So a yellow bowl, is that what I heard? Yep, yep. Okay, well, that might be a tip that a lot of our listeners actually go towards. So with Japanese beetles, is there really much you can do with it? I know we kind of jumped in with the squash vine board. Sure,
2: Japanese beetles we can treat for with a lot of different products. If you wanted to go organic, spinosad is a good option, as well as neem oil, pyrethrum. There's a product called Pyola. It's pyrethrum mixed with an oil that helps to get the product to stick to the plant. And so those work for about three to four days. You will be making multiple applications, but it does help to control some of the biting that the plant will get from the beetle. You can also use more heavy duty products like a pyrethroid or seven. You can also try to use some of those nicotinoids that are out there. We don't see that too often in a home garden setting, but they do work against the Japanese beetle. The other thing that you can do, and it sounds like a lot of work, but it's also very effective is just going out and picking them off the plant. If you go out and do that around 7 p.m. in the evening, the beetles, as they damage the plant, the plant releases these volatiles into the air that attract more beetles. And successive days of damage lead to more and more beetles being recruited to an individual plant. So if you snap that cycle, if you remove the bugs from the situation and they stop damaging the plant so much, it'll actually recruit fewer beetles the next day that are going to keep biting it. So go out with a bucket of soapy water in the evening, six or 7 p.m the beetles off, throw them in the soapy water, curse their name down to Hades if you'd like, let them know what you think of them. But if you do that, you'll see fewer beetles overall in the garden.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you recommended that for sure. So I know that we said with Japanese beetles, they can skeletonize the actual leaf of the plant. And is there anything that we could do? I know or in the grub form at some point. Is there really anything that we can do to put on the turf that will help with the grubs, maybe?
2: Grub control is very viable. There's things that you can do that are preventative so that you keep the damage from ever occurring to your turf. Those are products that usually go out in May or June, and they are applied to the turf. So Scott's Grub-X is one example that you would put down, and the turf absorbs it, and any grubs that hatch and feed in it later in the summer are going to be killed by the product. There's also curative, which is when you go out after damage has already happened, usually in late August or early September, and you put something down like dialogs, and you're trying to kill out as many of the grubs as possible. And while that does protect your turf and it helps your turf to recover, not something that's going to help too much with the garden. The adults are capable of flying for miles. Once they start to smell those plant volatiles I mentioned before, they're just going to make a beeline and try and find each other. They don't produce a lot of pheromones that recruit each other. They do early in the season. The female makes a pheromone that she has before she mates for the first time. And so they can smell that. But after that, they find each other actually by using the plant. They're like sharks in the water with blood. They find each other and find their food with that volatile that's being released. Unfortunately, you can do all the grub control you want, but unless the entire state is treated, there's still going to be Japanese beetle adults that are going to fly onto your crop.
1: Yeah. Like you said, with it being a flying type insect, you're definitely going to see damage at some point. So maybe the safety option, like you said, around evening hours might be the best sense of control that we have.
2: Do you get a lot of questions about the traps?
1: For the Japanese beetle traps? Uh Uh-uh. No, I haven't.
2: Really? That's interesting. I see a lot of people that are very interested in them and they're very passionate about them. They do help to capture a lot of beetles. But unfortunately, the problem I see most often is that somebody ties it to the tree they want to keep safe from Japanese beetles, or they put it right next to their garden. And if there's any plants within about 10 feet of that trap that beetles like, then you actually increase the amount of damage in that part of your landscape with the the trap there. So if you've got a lot of land and you can put it far away from what you want to protect, there is some efficacy there. But unfortunately the bag is so small and it uh, recruits so many beetles to it, it can't capture them all. And then they just start flying around and eating your landscape.
1: Is there, is there a certain number of plants that they pretty much flock to? Like, is there a, I guess it's like so many plant species that they, is there some that they don't like?
0: There are some
2: that they don't like. They they have about 300 different, uh, they have over 300 species that they'll use as a host. They love grapes. They love roses. um, They love some of our different trees that we plant in the landscape, but they also don't like some. So they don't like most of the oaks. There's a few maples that they don't want to chew on, but lindens, they'll devour those if they get an opportunity to. We have a list of those kinds of plants on our, our entomology website. I think if you look up in fact 451, you'll see a list of the most susceptible and then also a list of the least susceptible plants. So if you're planning a new landscape, you might want to think about Japanese beetle proofing yourself so you don't have to worry about them in the future.
1: Yeah, and I think a little bit of damage isn't going to hurt the plant. You know, it's going to rebound on its own. So so that's always good news, especially from a, a gardener or a homeowner, that it, it will rebound. So That's an
2: excellent point. Yeah, the damage usually occurs after the tree needs most of those leaves anyway. So yeah, it'll definitely grow through it.
1: Jonathan, I know that you have uh, talked to some of the agents across the state about some of your tick research, and that's also another pest that really can affect a lot of gardeners, and it has some negative, um, you know, things behind it, too. So, do you care to talk a a little bit about that?
2: Sure, yeah. we got to talk about the bugs that are going to get on the plants, and then the bugs that are going to get on the people that are taking care of the plants. Yes, Uh yes. Ticks are a big problem. Uh, We're seeing seemingly more ticks. I know that I feel like I've gotten more tick calls and inquiries in the last couple of years, even when I was out in Nebraska, than I did the first few years of my job. And so I think that we might be seeing an increase. It just feels like we are. And it just seems like that makes sense. Uh, We're seeing increases in deer populations and mice populations. And those are hosts for a lot of ticks then it makes sense that the ticks would also be doing pretty well out in the environment. So I have not gotten out in the field too much to do tick research, but we have a really great tick graduate student. She's the only person in the whole world that I've ever met that loves ticks. Uh, she's very excited about them. Her name's Anna Pasternak, and she goes out to every county, and she's been collecting ticks in those counties. She's received samples from across the state, from veterinarian offices. And she's trying to get a handle on what ticks live where in Kentucky, also figure out what pathogens are in those ticks. So one of the big things that drives that is Lyme disease. Do you get a lot of Lyme questions in your office? <laughs> we do. We yeah. do. I think that Lyme in Kentucky have a really interesting history. It seems like in the past, Lyme disease was not really associated with the bluegrass state, but it's starting seemingly to infiltrate the state. It used to be kind of a border issue. The counties on the edges of the state. Had issues with Lyme, but now we're seeing it more and more in interior counties. So we're trying to figure out if it's local transmission or if people are picking this up on a vacation somewhere else and then coming home and being diagnosed. And Anna's looking into all that. She's trying to kind of decipher all that and figure it out. It's a very ambitious project. It'll be posted all over the internet by the Department of Public Health. And they really want people to know what tick pathogens are out there. So she's concerned with Lyme, she's concerned with Rocky Mountain spotted fever which actually has more cases in the state of Kentucky. It's not as problematic as Lyme, but it's not fun to have either. And that's one that's spread by the American dog tick. Lyme disease would be spread by the black-legged tick or the black-legged deer tick. And then she gets a lot of questions. She can't do a lot of research on where it's at in the state, but the red meat allergy is another one that we're interested in. And that is a, it's not a disease, it is a true allergy that is, so far as we know, only spread by the Lone Star Tick. And that is where the tick bites a deer, it gets a sugar molecule, and it spit. It bites you, and then it spits into you. That's part of the tick's digestive process, is that they pass their saliva into the human. And then your blood gets that sugar molecule in it. Your body has a grandma panic attack and sends out antibodies to it and tries to react to it, and it starts this allergic reaction. And then the next time that you eat, Anything with this molecule in it, which happens to be any red meat, so steak, pork, and lamb, as well as a lot of the game meat that we consume, your body reacts. Again, it thinks that it's an invader. Again, this time it's just in the stomach and not in the blood. And so you have an allergic reaction where you sneeze, you have mucus, you get a headache. You can even have anaphylaxis uh, if it's a severe enough reaction. So these are the things that we're worried about with ticks in Kentucky. You definitely want to keep yourself safe if you're going out there. Do you wear tick prevention products when you go outside?
1: I generally do because we have um, a dog and our dog seems she's in and out. So she seems to bring in a lot of the ticks and they're mainly the American dog tick, but occasionally she'll have others too. So I try to definitely make sure I wear, you know, some DEET and you know, apply it around my ankles most of the time because it seems like that's how they start. <laughs> yeah,
2: they love to crawl up the ankles. That's a really easy bridge for them, isn't it? I mean, we wear shorts when we go outside. We want to be comfortable, and so getting up on our ankles and then crawling anywhere that they want after that seems to be an easy avenue for them. It's funny you mentioned the dog too because I've heard a lot of stories about that where the dog has some sort of tick protection on it, and then when they come inside, the tick jumps off, and now it's loose in the house, and it might end up biting a person that's in the
1: like seriously like as the back door we come in it was like there was a tick right there like on the crown molding you know like around the door frame and i'm just like it was just sitting there waiting like (laughs) you know like and i thought you know this is so interesting (laughs) but but yeah you know um our dog bella she she does have tick and flea and tick medication So anyway,
2: yeah, yeah. It's great to protect our furry friends from them as well because they're not good for for dogs and cats. They're not good for bovines and horses and anything like that either. Uh, We try to protect all those animals that we like. Uh, There is another tick that we're worried about. We've made a recent announcement about this. It's the Asian longhorn tick. And it actually is going to be a problem for some of those domestic animals. We think it'll be a big issue for beef cattle as well as the horses that we take care of here in Kentucky. And it'll be a big problem for our wildlife. So for any listeners that haven't heard of it before, this is an invasive pig species, which is kind of a rarity, it seems like, where it's not a plant attacker like we see with the Japanese beetle. This is something that's attacking animals. And it was first found in New Jersey back in two thousand fifteen or fourteen, if I remember correctly. And it was found on a sheep farm there. It's now spread out to several other states, and that includes West Virginia and Tennessee have have had multiple cases. Prior to this last find, we'd only had two cases in Kentucky. One involved a bear, one involved an elk. So it seemed kind of like a wildlife issue. And those were both on the border with West Virginia. But then just about a month ago, there was a find down in Metcalfe County, Kentucky, which is on the border with Tennessee, correct?
1: Mm -hmm. I learned my
2: Kentucky geography. (laughs) Uh, That one was on on a domestic animal, was on a bull. And so we're worried that that means that it's loose in that county, that it's out in the the landscape and the environment. There were not just, it wasn't just one tick, it was lots of ticks. And Anna actually went down and collected, I think, seven or eight of them herself and brought them back. And it's a weird tick. There's only females in the United States. There are no males so far. They reproduce asexually. So the female kind of clones herself and makes a new tick and it comes out and then starts feeding itself, it's a lot like aphids on a plant, which is uh, always a problem because those aphids build up really big populations really quickly. And these ticks do the same thing. So you can get hundreds and thousands of them on an individual animal. And we've actually seen cases of exsanguination. There have been animals that have bled to death into these ticks because of the feeding activity, which is kind of a horrifying thought, don't you think?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, yes.
2: Yeah. Uh, we're obviously less worried about that with people. We would notice, hopefully, hundreds of ticks developing on us and get them off of us. But with a, with a deer in the woods or with a groundhog, if they got on that, they have been found on lots of different species of wildlife here in, in the United States. They're not going to have the ability to get this off of them. And so it could have some consequences in the future. And according to a lot of the projections, Kentucky is kind of a prime habitat for this tick. We're afraid that it's going to be very successful here. So just keep your eyes open. If you see a weird tick and you want to collect it, you can put it in some rubbing alcohol or some white vinegar and you can try to ship it to the entomology department. You can try and talk to your local extension office, see if they're interested in mailing it for you. I know you all have forms that get mailed to us. So maybe there's some help there. You can also just send us pictures. Uh, If you want to email me, I'm J uh, um, I'm J L L A 226 at uky.edu. Uh, you can also just find me on Twitter. I'm Bugman John, and you can send me a picture through there, and I'd be happy to look at your tick. Hopefully yeah. not yeah. on your body. I'm not that kind of doctor.
1: that's right that's right well I was gonna ask you about that so I was glad that our conversation just immediately went to that because I know that y'all were definitely concerned about it and it's something to definitely be on the watch about
2: yeah it's a weird tick like I said and it doesn't have a lot of noticeable traits it's smaller than a lot of our native ticks and it doesn't have any distinguishing marks on it the lone star tick has that white dot on the female the black-legged tick has those black legs The dog tick has kind of that collar that we see around the head. But this one is just reddish brown and small. Um, There's nothing too spectacular about it, except for the fact that it can reproduce asexually.
1: Mm -hmm. So probably where you see the most tick populations is in high areas where there's a lot of grass. I guess high grass areas is what I was trying to say.
2: They like those kind of unmanaged spots and they like paths as well. So if there's anywhere that animals walk through or if you're on a dog trail at a park, those kinds of spots where the grass maybe gets a little taller and anything that's at knee height, hip height, If you think about how high a dog or a deer is. That's where a lot of ticks like to hang out in is that zone of height. And so any, any shrubs, any grass that's in that spot that might be that tall, those are the kinds of places that they hang out and they get at the tip of the branch of the grass and they stick their arm out in front of them and arms out in front of them. And they just wait for you to walk by so they can give you a creepy little hug and shimmy up your body. <laughs>
1: Creepy little hug.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've learned something new today. They're going to try to give you a creepy little hug. Uh, Yeah. So, so we can wear protection, like you said, and then also uh, be mindful of those areas where there could be a lot of tick infestation. Yeah.
2: For your gardeners, I would, I would definitely recommend putting DEET on. Uh, If you're going outside for just a couple of hours, DEET is enough. You can also try to tuck your pants into your socks to protect yourself, wear longer clothing. But also do a tick check when you come inside. It's the it's the best thing to do to get the tick off you before it bites you. So look in your armpits, your knee pits, your belly button, your groin, your waist, up in your hair. Anywhere that's kind of stinky and smelly that you don't normally share with other people. Those are the kinds of places ticks like to be. So mm-hmm. check those spots when you come in and uh, are showering or if you're just getting ready for bed. And make sure you don't have any unwanted hitchhikers coming in with you.
1: Oh, yeah. Now, I know that we've talked a little bit about everything today. (laughs) Is there any good resources that you can recommend to our listeners if they'd like more information?
2: Sure. Uh, I would always recommend your local Extension office. They've always got great information that's lined up on the shelves there. And if you want to find more entomology-specific things, I did mention our EntFacts earlier. We have a whole Extension website through our entomology uh, webpage. And everything is called an infact. And there's lots of different numbered publications about a lot of different topics. We have it separated out by vegetables and people and by inside pests. And you can look for the category that you're interested in and then find something about ants, find something about Japanese beetles, find something about protecting cattle from ticks and, and flies and things like that. We've got a lot of different products there. So if you want to check that out, that's where we house a lot of our information.
1: Yes, we'll, we'll definitely post that in our um, show notes uh, after you know today's episode goes live. And then lastly, to kind of end the show, is you are also a podcaster too. Yeah. And <laughs> I didn't realize this until you shared it with me, but you've got your own podcast show called Arthropods.
2: Arthropod. I was trying to be very clever. <laughs>
1: you did really good, and I actually looked into it. I didn't get to listen to anything before the show, but you got quite a few different uh, segments and shows there. What yeah. what kind of, how often do you usually have shows available? And then what kind of information besides insects do you have there?
2: We try to post twice a month on Arthropod. Um, we've done really well for the last year, getting two episodes out a month. Um, the types of things that we talk about, uh, we can be very in depth on a very specific insect topic. So our last episode that I can think of, we talked about insect population dynamics because we get a lot of people to ask questions about why am I not seeing this butterfly this year or what happened to all the cicadas? And we tried to talk about the factors that can lead into local drops in population and local rises in population. We also talked about pest management. Uh, We had a couple of episodes that we dedicated to the history of DDT, which is actually way more exciting than it might sound at the outset. It was a very, very controversial process throughout its whole history until it got very popular. Um, We've had a couple of episodes that were about specific pests. We're going to do one soon about kissing bugs since we get so many questions on those. But we also have entomologists on. So we talk to them about their research, how they got interested in bugs, and try to promote some up-and-comers in the field. Make sure that everybody knows that entomology is a really active and diverse field with lots of interesting minds in it.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you gave us some of those um, things that you touch on in your podcast. And where's the best way to find you if we want to subscribe to it?
2: Uh, we're on all the different podcatchers. So if you're on Apple Podcasts, it's just arthro-pod. You can find our blog. It's arthro-pod.blogspot.com. Uh, you can also find me and the other hosts through Twitter. And I, like I said, I'm at Bugman John, and I have a link on my Twitter bio there for Pod too.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk to us today. And I'm sure we're probably gonna have you on again, maybe sometime a little bit later to talk more about all those insects. I had
2: a lot of fun. I appreciate the invite.
1: Thanks for listening to the Sunshine Gardening Podcast. To check out more information about today's topic, make sure to see the show notes. Access episode nine on Summer Garden Pest by going to the blog at Warren County Agriculture. You can find that at www.warrencountyagriculture.com. And gardeners, remember,
0: keep on digging into gardening and remember to add a little sunshine. Thanks for listening to the Sunshine Gardening Podcast with Kristen Hildebrand. If you enjoyed today's content, make sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts to catch future segments of the Sunshine Gardening Podcast. Gardeners, keep on digging and learning more about gardening so the sun shines brighter over your Kentucky garden. The Sunshine Gardening Podcasts with Kristen Hildebrand is a production of the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service.